During the summer of 2019, researcher Leah Broussard and her team at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory announced the start of an experimental effort at detecting a hypothesized parallel mirror universe. A simple enough experiment, Broussard's team will send a beam of subatomic particles down a 50-foot tunnel toward an impenetrable wall. If results occur as hypothesized, some of those particles will transform into mirror image versions of themselves, allowing them to tunnel right through the wall. Broussard's experiment is actually an effort to put to empirical test an idea that was proposed a decade ago at the Nuclear Physics Institute in Russia. Not long after press releases spread of the Oak Ridge experiment, an article surfaced on Forbes.com which told readers to ready themselves to denounce and disbelieve any and all findings that initially point to the possible existence of a mirror universe. Their final argument? Mirror matter and even a mirror universe might be real, but if you want to make that extraordinary claim, you'd better make sure your evidence is equally extraordinary. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, theoryologists. Yes, we have all heard the adage, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Have you asked yourself, what does that even mean? Chances are, when you've heard it, or even used it, it has been in relation to a topic that you already feel confident is all but impossible to prove anyway. But where did it come from, and why has it become the go-to gotcha phrase for calling someone's bluff? especially regarding to conspiracy theory and the paranormal or supernatural. Come to think of it, how do we know when it applies? What exactly makes a claim extraordinary? To do this, I think we need to first understand the phrase itself, where it comes from, and what it is actually saying. After that, we can explore other aspects of popular thinking, which makes this resonate so well with the general public. Now. I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. Exploring cases and beliefs often leads to the inevitable discussion board with the oft-repeated phrases, prove it, and that's proven false already. I realized that I couldn't simply pick a single example or event and boil it down to that. We needed to discuss the axiom itself, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, is often taken as a conclusion to the discussion itself, as though it states a given truth about a claim, establishing its impossibility. At least, impossibility insofar as the claimant's ability to prove anything. I'll give you an example. I recently came across a rather curious claim about the stone statues of the Egyptian ruler Ramses II, located at Luxor. Now, these are very large statues, huge. This was just a small aspect to a much larger discussion regarding alternative histories of ancient Egypt, but this little portion really caught my attention. I mentioned it to a friend of mine. The heads of these statues, see, the, the head and face of Ramses, is, is nearly perfect. And what I mean by that is that the left and right sides are completely symmetrical. The eyes are exactly sized and level, the sides of the nose, the mouth, ears, and the symbolic crown as well. 
Additionally, these sculptures are geometrically amazing. They reflect ratios and relationships that exhibit not only very advanced mathematical concepts, but advanced levels of machining of the granite stone from which it's carved, much more in a way than is thought possible using bronze tools of the day. So, my friend was, as you might expect, reasonably suspect of the claim. I do regularly bring him wild ideas. I am the conspiracy theory guy, remember. But when I suggested that these statues might provide evidence that the Egyptians held advanced technology beyond that which is understood and accepted by modern Egyptology, any thought of entertaining the idea stopped. It was extraordinary, and this evidence wasn't extraordinary enough. In fact, it was already an impossibility, and not even worth exploring. While he didn't say the phrase, I heard it in my head. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And from what I'd shown him, there was nothing extraordinary in what he was seeing, and therefore it did not meet the criteria. The phrase itself, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, was coined and popularized by Carl Sagan in the TV series Cosmos. Sagan was no doubt attributing specifically to claims of extraterrestrial life, but it, it sounds, you know, on the surface, reasonable to any highly debatable claim. And, and the reason for this is that the statement didn't originate with Sagan. <laughs> it can actually be traced back to the 18th century with to a French mathematician, Pierre-Simon Laplace. Now, Laplace, he stated in a outrageous French accent, the weight of evidence for an extraordinary claim must be proportioned to its strangeness. <laughs> now, Laplace, he was no debunker or slouch when it came to claims. It would seem that he was rocking the 18th century with extreme mathematical and scientific concepts that were anything but ordinary. He is even attributed to having shaped, help anyway, shape the modern scientific method. And you can read more about him from the link in the show notes. Uh, essentially, Laplace was saying that the stranger the claim, the more strange the supporting evidence would seem as well. Well, that makes sense, right? If you claim that you play on an intramural soccer team on the weekends with aliens, you better have some really good selfies with said aliens. And... Probably a soccer ball. Here's the problem, though. It isn't that simple. It's never that cut and dry. Sagan's dictum sounds good in theory, but it starts to fall apart in practice. And perhaps for no other reason than real people can't seem to apply it objectively. This is the part I call moving the goalpost. There's no settled or absolute criteria for defining a claim as extraordinary. What counts as extraordinary According to author Satoshi Kanazawa in his 2011 article in Psychology Today, is what you know and believe. He quips, in the extreme case, if you know nothing, then everything is an extraordinary claim. <laughs> and in essence, since what you know and believe to be true and possible varies, sometimes wildly, from person to person, the same claim may be extraordinary for some, but not for others. See the problem here? Even time has a way of changing the definition. Cell phone technology, if proposed as possible 200 years ago, would be considered extraordinary. But by the 20th century, it was considered plausible and just a matter of time. And now that leads to another point made by Kanazawa. 
the definition of extraordinary can also depend on the established scientific norms and fads of the time. He elicits the pointed example of claims of differences in intelligence among races and sexes held even just a century ago. These claims were not considered extraordinary then, and were held by many as common knowledge that was well proven. Those same claims, if stated today, would be considered extraordinary and require extraordinary evidence. Now, I know what you're thinking. Race and sex-based intelligence isn't an extraordinary claim. It's a stupid claim. It's absurd. <laughs> well, that's, that's Kanazawa's point. We know today that human, the human brain, biologically, really has no dependency on race, ethnicity, or gender. For the most part, everyone gets a brain that is just about identical at birth, barring unfortunate birth defects. Instead, the differences in intelligence, and I'll, I'll concede, we're not going to try to establish what that scale for intelligence might be for this example, comes from environmental influences, such as culture, society, chemical effects and drugs, and, probably most pointedly, opportunity for education and learning. A society that withholds schooling and restricts travel to certain groups or classes or people creates a less knowledgeable group within society in a horribly self-fulfilling effort to handle a group deemed less intelligent, when in fact their intelligence, that ability to learn and explore, adapt, communicate, and even express ideas, isn't what is absent. Rather, it is their opportunity to use it to the fullest extent that has been made less. The extraordinary evidence to the extraordinary claim that all men are created equal has already been presented, both scientifically and sociologically. It just took much of society far too long to accept it. Now that it's the norm, as Kanazawa puts it, a claim of varied intelligence based on race and gender which seemed ordinary and reasonable a century ago, is now unacceptable and would demand an overwhelming amount of evidence to be considered. <laughs> These scientific norms can also work in the other direction. They can prevent society from holding an extraordinary claim as such and even develop acceptance without evidence. Okay, so Kanazawa does an excellent job of bringing the entire expression into question, and we could probably just leave it at that but I don't think that would do this discussion justice. There's more to explore. So, that label of extraordinary is faulty, true. But that doesn't eliminate the need for some serious evidence, does it? Let's take the term at face value. Understanding what Sagan meant when he was describing claims that many might find to be a hard pill to swallow without some serious convincing. These claims need evidence to be proven, right? So, let's get to the evidence and what we mean when we say that we need proof. As we get into the evidence, I want you to keep in mind an example. Let's talk about dark matter. Well, dark matter is, geez, it's, it's like the, <laughs> the center 
of the universe for all things, it seems, with astronomy and astrophysics these days. Right? All observations lead to dark matter. I guess kind of like the Roman roads. The problem is that physicists and astronomers don't really even know what it is. Right? The observations that support dark matter, dark matter come from different, lots of different independent observations. So it doesn't seem like some sort of, of observational error. You know, the, the observations which corroborate dark matter, uh, they're, they're a phenomenal discussion. It, it seems to be required to balance the mass of the universe, to understand how galaxies spin the way they do, or how gravity seems to function. But the problem is, for all of the experiments and all of the efforts that have been done over the last 40 years, no one's been able to actually observe dark matter itself. It's this massless, matterless, untouchable, unsensible substance. So, what is evidence? Dr. Paul uh, Thagard, from a March 2013 article, What is Evidence? in psychology today, did a wonderful job of providing a definition of evidence. And I thought it would be best to just simply list out his explanation, because it provides a platform which we can use to discuss evidence. First, he indicates the need for reliability. Right, A source of evidence is reliable if it tends to yield truths rather than falsehoods, as in systematic observations using instruments such as telescopes and microscopes in a controlled experiment such as those that many scientists practice. Now you can understand from that what that means is the evidence is only as reliable as the instruments that are used. Number two, intersubjectivity. This is systematic observations and, in co and controlled experiments do not depend on what any one individual says, but are intersubjective in that different people can easily make the same observations and experiments. I guess Thagard, he does a really good job of making this point that it can't just be a source of one person making the claim. Good evidence needs to be uh, observable in the same manner by multiple people. Three, he points out repeatability. Now, this is a major problem in many sciences these days. A major source of this intersubjectivity, he says, of systematic observations and controlled experiments is that the same person or different persons can get similar results at different times, replicating the original experiments or observations. Four, he defines robustness. Now, he defines robustness as experiments results uh, experimental results should be obtained in different ways such as using different kinds of instruments and methods for example different kinds of microscopes can be used to provide similar insight into cell structure and the fifth point he makes in defining evidence is causal correlation with the world evidence based on systematic observation or controlled experiments is causally connected with the world about which it is supposed to tell us. For example, he mentions telescopes and microscopes provide evidence because uh, reflected light enters the eyes of observers. 
stimulates their retinas, and generates perceptions in accordance with neural processes that are causally regular. That's pretty cool, right? We have a really good definition of evidence, that evidence requires reliability, intersubjectivity, repeatability, robustness, and is causal correlation. So, hey, let's start collecting it, and let's prove some theories to be extraordinarily true, right? I'm ready. Let's go. But hold on. I have to burst our bubble a little bit. See, another aspect to all of this is that proof, it seems, is a myth. Specifically, scientifically proving anything is impossible. See, all that evidence, no matter how much it ticks the boxes of credibility per our defining list, all of it has its limits. All those results, observations and measurements, uh, quantities, are only as good as the tools used to make those observations and the equipment used to gather those measurements. Pick a measurement, such as distance, brightness, clarity, size, color. They all are all only as good as your ability to you know, to best censor or to meter those or to scale. Even time measurements are only as good as the clock you have to use. Not only that, we simply can't measure everything. We can't observe the entire universe. We can't even observe all the wooded areas all the time to watch for Bigfoot, right? It's just not going to happen. Eventually, you work with what you've got. And at some point, you extrapolate using the data you have. Now, this is the framework for any established scientific theory. The Big Bang, or gravity, or evolution, anything that the mainstream defines as a proven theory, is really just a structure for predicting outcomes with relative certainty in untested circumstances later, based on what we already know happens in past observation. A theory has to have defined limits. What are we capable of measuring, and to what precision? What has been measured thus far under specific conditions? What observed relationships exist between specific quantities? And what are the limits for things we presently know? Now, given this limited framework, the idea is that you can confidently use a theory to reasonably predict what will happen under a variety of situations, understanding that you still have to go out and test these predictions empirically. That's all they are. Reasonable, reliable predictions. An educated guess with a high degree of confidence. At any point, though, those assumptions can become invalid based on new empirical data. That doesn't just usually happen out of the blue, but it's possible. Now, I've pulled that information from a 2017 article, also at Forbes.com, by uh, contributing editor Ethan Siegel. He makes the case against proof in much more detail, and it's in the show notes. Fun fact, and not surprisingly, Siegel is the same senior contributor that provided the article first mentioned that warns people to not accept any experiment that claims the existence of parallel universes. This group really doesn't like the idea of claiming to prove anything. Now, we could discuss the proof myth all day. But the takeaway is that every claim falls short of the 100% confidence marker. So that can't be the reason for something to be extraordinary. 
What really makes a claim more extraordinary than other claims is its potential impossibility. This potential definition of extraordinary comes from a 2015 article on Pathios.com by James Gray. We know what good quality evidence is now, and we know that the extraordinary label is often subjectively misused. But let us assume we can properly ascribe the label correctly. What does that look like? Well, Gray, in the Pathios article, makes the case for defining extraordinary claims within the context of impossibility. He defines three types of impossibility in this article. One, physical impossibility. What can't be true because it would require the laws of nature to be violated. For example, jumping to the moon is physically impossible. Some people say that miracles are physically impossible, but still occur to, to, due to div, uh, divine or supernatural intervention. Two, metaphysical impossibility. What can't be true in any reality. What never happens in any possible world. Not even the supernatural could violate what's metaphysically impossible. For example, finding a world where water isn't H2O is plausibly metaphysically impossible. And the third impossibility, logical impossibility. Simply put, logical contradictions. What can't be true because of logical constraints. For example, it's logically impossible for Socrates to be both mortal and immortal. Gray then goes on to define for us the proper use of extraordinary. Quote, The sense of impossible that deals with extraordinary claims is metaphysical impossibility. To claim that something is true, that we know to be metaphysically impossible, is absurd. But to claim that something is true that we suspect could be metaphysically impossible because of our understanding of the world is extraordinary. Anything we know to be physically impossible is potentially metaphysically impossible. It might be metaphysically impossible for the laws of nature to be violated. Perhaps there are no possible worlds where the laws of nature are violated. Now, I think that says it beautifully. A truly extraordinary claim is one that appears impossible in any reality based on our current understanding of what we know. It's not that ordinary claims don't need evidence. It's just that they're already supported by evidence that already exists and has convinced us of that claim's validity because it's in line with what we already know to be possible. Certainly, this does put the burden of proof on the extraordinary claim. It should not be taken at face value without a load of evidence. But does that evidence need to be equally as different from ordinary types of evidence? Gray discusses this as well in the article. The simple answer is no. An extraordinary claim is supported the same way as any other claim. Evidence. Now, I know that we've covered a lot of concepts just to pick apart a phrase. Perhaps a good way to digest it is to do some quick analysis given what we now know of a few claims. Some considered extraordinary, others not. Now, let me just pull one out of the air here. Think of this claim of of extraordinary evidence that I have uh, I just had an interview with the Lady of the Lake, thus proving the historical accuracy of previously assumed fictional mythology of King Arthur. Well, that claim 
is really a, a uh, physical impossibility if you were to evaluate the Lady of the Lake. It creates its own claim. The idea that there is a woman living in a lake underwater and apparently alive for centuries, uh, being able to identify that she was there in, per- in person witnessing um, and actually conducting the uh, the ascension of King Arthur by bestowing him with the sword or Excalibur, right? Well, this violates this this possibility. It becomes uh, really a, a, a physical impossibility. Now, do we know if it's metaphysically impossible? Is there any world where that might be possible? Or is it completely impossible? Uh, that's what makes it extraordinary. And perhaps that's the case. Likewise, the evidence itself doesn't follow any of the uh, the parameters we've set for evidence. It, it really, it's a, it's a new extraordinary claim of its own. It's reasonable for nobody to find this uh, valid, and it would be considered extraordinary on all counts. Ah, but let's get back to dark matter, right? Let's pull out that dark matter. See, the claim itself is actually pretty extraordinary. And in fact, there's a dearth of evidence. As we said, they haven't been able to find it over 40 years. Now, there's no evidence whatever. I mean, it exists on paper and indirectly. Right for for everything to work the way it does, it has to exist for these current accepted models for for galactic activity and movement and rotation for gravity for the aging of the universe for the size for expansion for everything going on. Dark matter must be there. Something must be there that we are identifying as dark matter. For our scientific paradigm to remain intact. And yet, (laughs) everybody just accepts that, okay, then, dark matter exists. But there's been no evidence. There's been no evidence to check the boxes. Yet we don't consider that claim extraordinary. In contrast, let's talk about the 9-11 conspiracy. How much evidence is enough evidence for the group, the architects and engineers of uh, 9-11 Truth organization to prove their contention that the Building 7 collapse was actually a controlled detonation. Granted, the, the claim seems extraordinary, uh, but is it truly extraordinary? Is there uh, a physical impossibility that that building would have fallen through a controlled detonation? No, it's not physically impossible at all that buildings buildings fall all the time and collapse due to controlled detonations. Uh, Is it a metaphysical impossibility? Of course not. It happens in this world, and it probably happens in any other type of world. And is it a logical impossibility? No, it's not impossible for that logic stream to have occurred. It's not an extraordinary claim, and it just requires evidence. And yet, it's deemed as such. And it's relegated to, to... crazy wild conspiracy theory that should be removed from YouTube. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe the question should be asked, is it really just considered extraordinary falsely because of political expediency or or an uncomfortable uh, reality that may occur and what it might uh, uh, indicate 
of the uh, you know gov- government and ruling bodies and and people in power of the time all right and for a final example habitable planets with advanced life versus alien life visiting earth all right well, let's let's look at that if you talk to anybody the percentage of the population that considers it possible that thinks it it there must be life advanced life somewhere out in this gigantic universe is huge people are confident in saying that and yet most people would not accept the notion that alien life is visiting earth now are either of those uh, a physical impossibility are either of them metaphysically impossible and what's the logical impossibility there both are reasonable and <laughs> um the only thing that gives weight to the habitable planets is that we have a sample size of one. In the entire observable universe, we have a sample size of one habitable planet with advanced life. We may have hundreds, thousands of potentially habitable planets, Earth-like or similar, uh, but no indication of, of advanced life. And certainly none have perhaps given us overt evidence that's being picked up or told to us. Why is everybody so confident? Why is that not considered an extreme or extraordinary claim that life exists? And if that's not extraordinary, why is alien life visiting Earth? What evidence is required? What makes it, uh, you know, reliable and repeatable and robust? Well, there are hundreds, thousands of testimony, of uh, um, experiences, of photographic evidence, of video evidence. There's a lot out there. How much of that is enough? Is that none of it has been considered wild and extraordinary enough to support an extraordinary claim? What does that mean? Certainly all that evidence seems to be robust, seems to have been repeated, but maybe it's simply not given that, that level of scrutiny. Okay, as you can see, there's lots of topics. And what we considered extraordinary versus ordinary in our claims uh, seems to really be skewed and seems to be wrong, uh, at least in my, in my opinion. And maybe that's an extraordinary claim in and of itself. But ultimately, let me leave you with some, I don't know, final thoughts, a summary of all of this, because we have covered a ton of stuff. Right, we've covered this concept and we've discussed the need for all of these different elements. So what does it all mean? Ultimately, the phrase extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. It's meant to end a discussion before it begins. It's meant to put any claim within the confines of the scientific method and filter out the less tangible conceptual ideas. Things that often fall into the realm of the paranormal and the supernatural obviously fall into this category. Additionally, ideas that are deemed politically incorrect, socially unacceptable, or question the legitimacy of the current power structure also get included in the calling. I think it can better be understood simply by rephrasing it to sound as it's used by many. Unbelievable claims required equally unbelievable evidence. See, with that single word substitution, we understand fully that the phrase is meant as a demand to the claimant to produce evidence that will ultimately reinforce the presumptive conclusion 
that the claim was wrong in the first place and all along. Since we know the evidence will be junk, from an experimental perspective, we can presume the claim is baloney right out of the gate, and thus end the whole discussion before it wastes any more time. The world is just as we know it to be, and anything that threatens that reality is obviously false. The end. Well, as we've established in this discussion, and hopefully through the many episodes before on this podcast, that's hardly the case. Extraordinary claims are certainly out of the ordinary, by definition, and would definitely have a difficult time finding traction in popular opinion. But in the end, though, they, along with any other claim, extraordinary or otherwise, all require evidence. Not extraordinary evidence, good evidence. For claims that question the mainstream physical paradigm, the evidence should be reliable, repeatable, and robust. I'm talking to you, Dark Matter. People can dismiss flat earthers all they want for their failed experiments, but perhaps we also need to turn that laughter toward the Dark Matter treasure hunters that have failed time and time again to detect anything. The Oak Island treasure hunt has produced more tangible evidence than you guys. As for the less tangible concepts, those that change the way we think, believe, or understand the past, or even current society, reframe the discussion. As we've established, no one can prove anything. That's not the goal. It's about establishing the possibility. Argue and search for the physical, metaphysical, and logical possibility of a claim. Science is actually doing a lot of the work for you, with fields such as theoretical physics and archaeoastronomy really proposing some curveball theories out there and making mathematical cases for them. As well, modern technology is opening up windows into observation and accuracy that were simply unknown mere decades ago. It's time to rethink what we consider extraordinary and reevaluate those things we accept as a given. Now tell me, what do you find extraordinary? What deserves a fair shake given the available evidence? What needs to be taken down a peg or two on the belief meter? Let me know. Email me, contact at conspiracytheoryology.com or find me on the socials at TheoryologyPod. Now, this month was a delayed episode and there will be only one more episode released in 2019, sometime in mid-December. After that, the show will be taking a short hiatus and return in January. Okay, that will do it. All the info can be found at conspiracytheoryology.com, including how to support the show on Patreon and links to the merchandise store for t-shirts and other goodies. Music, as always, is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to those that are supporting on Patreon. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology. Theoryology.